Welcome to this Uvula Audio bookcast of Smuggler's Reef by John Blaine. Volume 9, Chapter 19, The Fight at Creek House. Rick and Scotty watched helplessly as Jerry was carried into the hotel. Then they looked at each other wordlessly. In a moment, the seaman who had carried him returned, but Brad and Red didn't. The one who had first reported to Brad, probably the mate or bosun, stood on the dock and called to the men in the boat. The boys could hear him clearly. Let's get busy. We got to load this stuff fast. One of the men in the boat called. What are they going to do with the kid? Find out what he knows, then knock him on the head and shove him under the fish until we're out where we can dump him. Rick and Scotty grabbed for each other at the same time. They knew without speaking what they had to do. Rick snatched up the camera, hauling it out of the muck recklessly. He pulled the power plug and Scotty reeled it in. They plowed through the swamp as fast as they could without making too much of a disturbance. Scotty led the way, cutting straight through the marsh to the boat. His highly developed direction sense showed him the way. It seemed forever to Rick, but it was actually only a few minutes before they were climbing into the boat. What do we do? He asked desperately as he stowed the camera. If we start the boat, they'll hear it, and it would take too long to pull out. We swim, Scotty said tersely. It's faster. Get out of your clothes, but tie the laces of your shoes together and hang them around your neck. We're going to need them. Quickly, they stripped to their shorts and then draped shoes around their necks and slipped into the mud again. The water deepened rapidly, and they began to swim with a noiseless side stroke. Rick followed Scotty, knowing that his friend was at his best in a situation like this. They reached the edge of the marsh and angled along its edge, swimming strongly. Rick was in an agony of fear for Jerry. How had he gotten caught? And where? Scotty slowed and then stopped. The sudden feel of sluggish current warned Rick that they were at the creek mouth. Watch your splashes, Scotty whispered. We'll cross to the outside of the fence. For the next few moments, they would be vulnerable if Carrots happened to walk to the bank and look across. But it had to be chanced. Scotty started out, and Rick drew abreast of him. They swam cautiously, making no noise or splash. They reached the opposite bank safely and crawled up the beach until they were sure that the fence hid them from any watchers at Creek House. We gotta draw Karis to the back of the hotel, Scotty whispered. Then we can get in through the creek side of the fence. But how? Rick thought quickly. If they could make some sort of noise on the other side. But it would take too long to go over there and then come back again. 
and it wouldn't be safe to enter near where they had made the noise anyway. He started to put on his shoes, and as his fingers touched the strings, an idea blossomed. Look around for a piece of wire or rope, he said swiftly, and began running down the reef, eyes searching the dark ground. Scotty went up the other side and began to search too. Rick knew they would find what he wanted on the wreck of the trawler, but hoped he wouldn't have to go that far. But he was in luck. He stumbled over a loop of rusty wire, grabbed it, and heaved. It came free. Swiftly, his fingers explored it. It was about eight feet long. That was good. Probably had been buried when part of the reef nearest the hotel had been filled in with trash to make a parking area. He had noticed odds and ends of junk around. He ran over to Scotty and told him what else he needed, and they both hunted until they found a jagged piece of metal that would suit. It weighed about two pounds and had holes along one edge, probably originally drilled for rivets. They unkinked the wire carefully. Then Rick passed one end through a hole of the steel and made it fast, while Scotty bent a loop at the other end and wound the wire around itself to make a handhold. You do it, Rick whispered. Scotty put a hand through the loop he had made and gripped it tight. Then he went as close to the hotel fence as he could without raising the trajectory too high and began to whirl the contraption around his head. Faster and faster he whirled until it began to whine, and then, with all the momentum of his body, he released it. The missile soared away in a long, low arc past the hotel and onward. The boys waited, not breathing, and heard it crunch through the reeds on the far side of the hotel. They ran to the creek end of the fence and looked around. The men at the pier were looking toward the marsh behind the garage. Red Kelso was walking that way, and Karis was running, rifle lifted. Scotty and Rick rounded the corner and ran silently to the front of the hotel. Now they had to find Jerry. Rick stepped to the front porch and tried the door. It was unlocked. Taking his nerve in both hands, he pushed the door open and stepped inside. It was quiet in the hotel, but he knew the layout. They had been forced to explore every inch of it. He led the way toward the kitchen, then flattened against the wall of the hallway as he saw a light streaming through. He felt Scotty brush against him. Rick leaned forward, keeping his face in shadow, just as Brad Marbeck, his curiosity getting the better of him, walked to the side door and stepped out. Rick took a long step into the kitchen. No one was there. Then he saw a lit doorway across the room. It was a good bet. With his eyes on the door through which Brad had gone, he trotted swiftly across the floor. Scotty was right behind him. Rick smothered an exclamation as he saw Jerry. The reporter was seated in a chair, tied fast. The gag, a bundle of rags, had been stuffed into his mouth. There was a bad bruise over his left eye and another on his left temple. Rick was at his side in three long steps. He jerked the gag from Jerry's mouth, cautioned him to silence, and started to untie him. Scotty went to the window, which fortunately faced the Seaford side of the house, and leaned out. Rick heard Brad call, you find anyone? There was a faint answering call. No one here. Hurry up, Scotty whispered. He went to the door and stood to one side, looking into the kitchen. Rick tugged at a recalcitrant knot and then got it loose. Jerry stood up, 
hands still tied behind him. Rick fought with the knot and wished for a knife. There were footsteps in the kitchen. Rick's fingers got a hold and he heaved. The footsteps came closer. Scotty crouched. Brad Marbeck entered the room and stepped into a terrific roundhouse swing with all of Scotty's frantic weight behind it. Brad stumbled backwards and fell, and he roared. They're in the house! Cover the doors! He got to his feet and his powerful legs drove him forward. Scotty stepped directly into his way. The rope loosened in Rick's hand. He unwound Jerry, working as fast as he could. He turned just in time to see Brad's arms reach for Scotty. The fisherman's face was distorted in a snarl, and blood trickled from his cut lip. Scotty backpedaled swiftly. He took Brad's outstretched hands and then fell backwards, feet lifting, catching Brad in the stomach. Scotty heaved. The heave and the smuggler's momentum shot him headlong, and he smashed into the wall. Scotty leapt to his feet. Run! he yelled. Rick propelled Jerry into the kitchen. As they started across the room, he saw Red Kelso at the door. The front, he called. Hurry, Jerry. The reporter was fast getting the use of his limbs back. Scotty led the way to the front hall, and Jerry stumbled after him. As Rick passed through the doorway from the kitchen into the wide hallway, he spotted a cabinet. He grabbed it and tugged. It came away from the wall, and he stepped from under it, letting it crash at an angle across the passageway. That would hold Red for a few seconds. They sprinted for the open front door and met Carrots head-on just inside the entrance. Scotty dove at him. His shoulder caught the redhead in the chest and slammed him backwards. Carrots' arms flew up and the rifle he was carrying sailed from his grasp and slid across the porch to the sidewalk. The boys started to pile out over him. Then they stopped short. Two of the crew were pounding up the sidewalk, leaping to the steps and they were carrying clubs. They were trapped. Up the stairs, Rick said hoarsely. Scotty bent over the fallen carrots and jerked him to his feet. You're coming with us, he grated. Rick was already halfway to the stairs. Red Kelso was climbing over the blockade in the hallway. Brad Marbeck just behind him. Rick stopped. Hurry, Scotty! Hostage, Scotty grunted. He took carrots' arm in a jiu-jitsu wrist lock and rushed him across the room. Carrot struggled, and then let out a yelp. It was either go peacefully or break his own arm. Run, Scotty commanded, and Carrots ran up the stairs. Jerry followed, and Rick brought up the rear. Their pursuers were gaining. Rick's mind raced as he climbed two stairs at a time, reconstructing the plan of the house. He rejected the idea of barricading themselves in a room on the second or third floor. The hall would give their enemies too much room for a battering rush against a door. The attic, he called ahead to Scotty. And step on it, they're gaining! They crossed the second floor landing and went up the stairs to the third. At the top of the third landing was a rusty bucket full of sand. Rick knew this because he had been forced to dig through the sand. It was evidently a relic of Coast Guard occupancy placed there to extinguish cigarettes. He pressed hard against Jerry's heels, hearing the thud of footsteps on the stairs behind him and the cries of get him from Red Kelso. Scotty, Carrots, and Jerry sprinted for the attic stairs. Rick paused long enough to scoop up the bucket of sand. 
he hurled it after him straight into the faces of the smugglers and found time for a grin at their yells and curses. The attic stairs led straight up with no landing at the top. The door was ajar. Rick's trick had gained a little time. They went through it with seconds to spare, and Rick slammed it shut. Find the light, he gasped. There's one up here. He remembered a tiny bulb high in the ceiling. Key, in the door, Scotty snapped. Outside. It was there last time. Rick opened the door and had a quick glimpse of dark figures rushing up the stairs. He fumbled for the key, jerked it loose, and slammed the door shut. With his shoulder against it, he inserted the key on their side and twisted it, just as bodies thumped against the other side. Jerry found the light switch and turned it on. Carrot's lips drawn tight was bent over the jujitsu hold Scotty had on him. Rick found a few old pieces of overstuffed furniture, too disreputable to have been moved or sold, and he and Jerry pushed them against the door. If we could just hold out, Jerry said between swollen lips, Captain Douglas will get here. If, Rick echoed. Red Kelso called through the door. Okay, you kids, open up. We'll make things easy on you. But if we have to break the door down, it'll be rugged. The boys looked at each other. Carrots grinned. Rick didn't like that grin. He yelled back. Try to come through that door, and we're going to throw your son out a window. Carrots turned white. Stop talking like a fool and open up, Kelso demanded. We warned you, Rick yelled. There was a solid thump as his shoulders hit the door. Rick cast a desperate look at Scotty. The door wouldn't hold long. Scotty winked at Rick and jerked his chin at Carrots' back. Out the window with him. Rick growled. He lunged forward and took the boy's legs. Jerry, who had caught the wink too, took his shoulders while Scotty kept a wrist lock clamped tight. They rushed Karis to the window and Rick let go long enough to throw up the sash. They lifted Karis to the sill. Pop! he screamed. They're throwing me out! The thumping at the door ceased. The elder Kelso called. Keep your head, Jimmy. They don't dare. They know we're coming in anyway. And if they throw you out, they haven't got a chance. Kelso had spoken the exact truth, and the boys knew it. They let Carrot slump to the floor. Scotty spoke into Carrot's ear. I'll peep out of you, and I'll break your arm. Rick, we've got to have help and quick. Who's the fastest runner? Jerry, Rick said promptly. The reporter had been a sprinting champion in school. Are you okay now? Fine. What's your plan? A door panel splintered as shoulders crashed against it. Good thing there was little space to stand out there. The smugglers couldn't get much leverage. Scotty talked fast. We'll unblock the door, open it suddenly. Then, Rick, you dive into the mob. They'll be off balance because the stairs are steep. Jerry... You'll have to leap forward over their heads to try to get away. He was behind Carrots and his wink was concealed. Carrots will help us. No, I won't, Carrots stated. Yeah, you will, Scotty corrected. And you'll say, Pop, hold it a minute. They want to talk it over. Just like that. He twisted his hand slightly and Carrots yelped. Scotty frog-marched him to the door. 
Rick and Jerry slid the furniture away. The door was close to giving in now. The hinges started to pull loose. Rick put one hand on the key and the other on the knob, hoping he had interpreted Scotty's wink correctly. Jerry crouched to one side of the door. Scotty held Kara's directly in front of it and commanded, Speak your peace. Carrots did willingly under the pressure of Scotty's hand. The thumping stopped. What do you want to talk over? Kelso demanded. Scotty nodded and Rick spun the key and jerked the door open. Carrots, all of Scotty's driving weight behind him, catapulted headlong and smashed into the men on the stairs like a battering ram. They tumbled down under the impact like a row of dominoes, and Jerry went out the door as though shot from a crossbow. His feet flying struck backs, legs, and spurred faces. He gained the landing in a mad dive, scrambled to his feet, and was gone. The smugglers clambered to their feet, or at least tried to. After him, Marbeck bellowed. Red Kelso had fallen backwards, and his legs were almost at the door. Scotty and Rick grabbed simultaneously and heaved, setting the upper men sprawling again. Then the boys withdrew and slammed and locked the door. Jerry had had the advantage of complete surprise, and his momentum had gotten him past the men on the lower stairs. Rick and Scotty couldn't have made it after the initial shock. They pushed the furniture against the door again and drew back. The less help was near, they were done for. There was nothing more they could do except wait and fight once the door gave. Rick wrenched the leg from an ancient broken chair and silently handed it to Scotty. Then he found one for himself. The banging had renewed almost instantly. Scotty went to the window and looked out. Rick joined him just in time to see Jerry rounding the corner of the fence. He made it, Rick said with satisfaction. Two of the seamen crossed below, but Rick knew they would never catch his friend. He turned to face the door. Closer, Scotty said. They moved closer and took places, one on each side of the door, and waited. Smash. And again. And then again. Wood dust flew as hinges and screws gave with a loud screech. The door was just hanging now. There was another smash, and it flew inward and Red and Brad charged, with two seamen close behind. Rick met Brad Marbeck with a lightning thrust of his chair leg, and the smuggler doubled over, but his great body could absorb more punishment than Rick could give. He drove forward, brushed aside a swing of the chair leg, and his arms locked around the boy. Rick groaned as the steely hug drove the air from him. He felt a hand loosen and kicked frantically for Brad's legs. Then Brad's free hand caught him behind the ear, stunning him. Rick slumped to the floor, fighting for breath and consciousness. Across the room, the seaman had Scotty, grabbing for his flailing arms while Red Kelso stood back and shot punches at him. Then the seaman got a firm grip and held him fast. Kelso's open hand slapped back and forth until Scotty's head sagged. Carrots crawled into the room, face contorted one hand on his ribs. He got to his feet and walked unsteadily over to Scotty. He swung a roundhouse right. Scotty's head moved an inch and Carrots missed, and the force of the swing spun him around and he almost fell. Rick laughed gaspingly. 
Kara's face was scarlet. He walked over to where Rick was struggling for wind and drew his foot back. I'm going to kick your teeth right down your throat, he grated. Captain Mike's voice came from the doorway. I'd call that mighty impolite. Rick turned on his side and stared unbelievingly. The old sea captain stood rock-steady in the doorway, and at his shoulder was Carrot's rifle. He spoke calmly. I've only got one shot in here. You could get me before I had time to pump it up again. Found it on the porch and took me a few minutes to figure it out. Almost put a slug through me foot doing it. But I got it in hand now, and I've got one shot. So who wants it? Marbeck took a half-step forward, and the muzzle swung to cover him. Captain Mike's finger tightened. So it's you then, Brad. Marbeck stepped back. Come toward me, both of ya, Captain Mike said to Rick and Scotty. Rick crawled forward under the line of fire. Scotty, suddenly released, dropped to the floor and did the same. The smugglers stayed where they were, frozen by the calm threat of the old man's voice. So I was eel-fishing, and I saw the young reporter skate around the corner with two men after him. Then I noticed Scotty and Rick looking out, and I thought I'd better take a hand. Didn't know just what to do until I spotted this BB gun on the front porch. His voice hardened as Red Kelso shifted position. But now I know what to do. Far down Million Dollar Row, Jerry met the state police cars, and as Rick grinned up at the captain, he heard the welcome sound of sirens. Chapter 20 Read All About It Jerry Webster came out of the press room with a bundle of papers under his arm. The roar of the presses provided a background for his chant. Extra! Read all about it! Spin drifters, smear smugglers. Seaman shows shooting savvy. Simple sap scampers. Save skin. Read all about it. Rick snatched up one of the papers. Thanks, I will. Hey, gang, listen to this. He read the headline aloud. Seaford Gunrunners Caught. Scotty took a paper or two and read the subhead. New night movie camera supplies evidence for surprise raid. He grinned at Jerry and Duke Burrows. Very restrained. Not a purple adjective in the lot. Captain Douglas let out a bellow. Hey, you don't mention the state police until the second line of the story. Call a cop, someone. I want these guys pinched. Charge them with serving poison coffee, Captain Mike suggested. Never drank such a horrid brew in my life. Duke grinned. That isn't coffee, Skipper. It's printer's ink with cream and sugar. Go on, Rick, or somebody. Read the rest of it. Byline, Rick said, by Jerry Webster. And under that it says copyrighted by the morning record. How'd you copyright it so quickly, Duke? Send a copy airmail to the copyright office and enclosed a dollar. The letter will go out tonight. It's standard procedure. Go on, read. I edited Jerry's story so fast I didn't have a chance to enjoy it. Rick read on. A Seaford trawler captain, four members of his crew, and two New Yorkers were arrested tonight on gun-running charges after a surprise raid by state police officers culminated in a series of events 
that included the wrecking of the trawler's sea bell, the use of a new invention by the two youngest members of the Spindrift Island Foundation to photograph the transfer of arms under cover of darkness on the high seas, the kidnapping and maltreatment of a morning record reporter, and a fight in the attic of the Creek House Hotel that was ended by the timely intervention of a retired sea captain. Rick got the last words out with his last bit of breath. Scotty looked at Jerry with admiration. He's not a distance runner. He's a distance rider. That was a hundred-yard sentence right there. I cannot tell a lie, Jerry said modestly. I did it with my little dictionary, written by an ancestor who was also famous, Noah Webster. One of the most surprising disclosures, Rick read on, was the reason for the stubborn silence of Captain Thomas Tyler, master of the trawler Seabell, which was wrecked on Smuggler's Reef a week ago. As reported in previous editions, Captain Tyler maintained an obstinate silence as to the real reason for the wreck of the trawler in the face of pleas from friends and officials. He had maintained that he was solely responsible and that his error in judgment had been caused by liquor. After the arrest of the smugglers, Captain Tyler willingly told this reporter that he had discovered the smuggling activities of Captain Bradford Marbeck and Roger and James Kelso two weeks before. That was a good guess we made, Captain Mike said soberly. Poor Tom, he was in some spot. He knew about the smuggling, but he was like we were. Couldn't prove a thing. He could have told the police and asked for protection, but they wouldn't have had the grounds for holding Brad and the Kelsos. They would have been free to carry out their threats against his family inside of twenty-four hours. That's right, Scotty said, but he didn't know any more than we did what they were smuggling. The axes of the police officers had disclosed rifles, submachine guns, and ammunition in the cases innocently labeled as sewing machines, and no one had been more surprised than the boys. Thousands of guns and ammunition must have gone out before we caught on, Rick said. What happens to the people that received them? That's not our affair, Captain Douglas told him. Since they went to ships and nationals of a foreign country, it's up to the Department of State to take action, if there's going to be any. We filed the story with Universal Press Services, Jerry explained. It's all over the country by this time. Copyright by the Whiteside Morning Record, he grinned. We're modest, Duke and I. You are? Anyway, Rick scoffed. Kidnapping and maltreatment of a Morning Record reporter. Why didn't you give the reporter's name? Jerry turned a little red, but he said loftily, We prefer heroes to remain anonymous. Hero was right, Duke said dryly. You came within an inch of having a bronze plaque erected in your memory as one who fell in the line of duty. What, only bronze? Jerry looked hurt. Rick gave him a wink. Jerry's act had brought him close to the ranks of heroes at that, if quick thinking and nerve combined with bad luck were any qualification. He glanced through the story quickly and found what the young reporter had said about his own part. While attempting to gather evidence, the morning record reporter who figured in the case was caught by the truckmen who delivered the arms to Creek House. After being beaten, bound, and gagged, he was taken to the hotel. His questioning was interrupted by the arrival of Brant and Scott. 
and that really was modesty. Jerry had been returning from the boat landing when he passed a big trailer truck that carried the name of a large manufacturing company of industrial castings. He thought quickly, surprised at seeing such a vehicle on Whiteside. Such trucks always used the shorter main route. To his positive knowledge, there was not a single manufacturing plant on the entire shore road on which Whiteside and Seaford were located. There was a definite chance, he decided, that the truck might be carrying a load for Creek House. He knew the smugglers had made fast changes in their plans, as witnessed the moving up of the ship sailing. There was a strong possibility they had been forced to ask for immediate shipment of the contraband, too. Jerry passed the truck and stopped at the newspaper long enough to scrawl a note to Duke, explaining what happened. Then he passed the truck again and drove furiously toward Seaford. He went by Salt Creek Bridge and parked his car in a pasture, and he ran back to the bridge and made his way into the marsh and waited. The trailer truck arrived, stopped, and put out flares, and three men got out. They jacked up the rear wheels of the trailer, then started to unload. By doing so, they had a perfect reason for being there. If a police car came along, they had only to explain that they had a broken axle and were replacing it, and that they had taken out part of their cargo to lighten the load until repairs were completed. The stage was no sooner set than up the river came the flatboat from Creek House. It pushed its way into the marsh toward Jerry. Not until the actual loading started did he discover his bad luck. He had taken a fairly well-defined path into the marsh. The path was artificial. It was made by the Kelsos. They had carried rocks to make both the path and the stone jetty to which the flatboat had come. The deception had worked because the path and jetty surfaces, strong enough to carry the weight of men with heavy cases, were under an inch of mud and water. Jerry had described the end simply. They fell over me. I tried to get away, but there were too many of them. But he had gotten in one good blow. His hand closed over one of the rocks of the path, and he swung it effectively. The state police, hearing his story, made a routine check of doctors and hospitals along the route the truck probably had taken. They assumed it would not turn around on the narrow shore road. The trucker, Jerry had felled, was in a small clinic two towns below Seaford, and an interstate alarm had gone out for the others, giving license numbers and descriptions supplied by the reporter. They wouldn't get far. Jerry's luck had been bad, but Captain Douglas's luck had been good. The accumulated evidence probably would have been enough, but one of Brad Seaman had talked, hoping for a lighter sentence. Rick was most pleased to find that his theory about smugglers' light had been close to the truth. The marks on the old tower had been made by a powerful light supplied by Brad Marbeck. The light, once used for night purse seine fishing, was powered by a carbon arc. A cable connected it to the same junction box that supplied Smuggler's Reef light had furnished the power for it. The police officers had found signs of tampering in the junction box, but they called the authorities responsible for the light to make a definite check. The light itself had been stowed in Brad Marbeck's home. One quarter of the cylinder had been blacked out with paint. Red cellophane was pasted on to another quarter. There were still no answers to who had phoned the warning to Rick or why Carrots had trailed them into Whiteside, but those things weren't important anyway. Probably their original guesses had been right. The others had fallen silent, engrossed in reading Jerry's story. Rick went through it again, more carefully. 
The young reporter had done well. It was an exciting yarn. Then he looked at the side pieces, other stories dealing with the case, written by both Duke and Jerry, in the feverish rush to make the morning paper. There was a simple statement by Captain Killian, who long since was asleep in his own bed at Seaford. There was a photo of Rick and Scotty with the infrared camera, and a story by Duke of its use in collecting of evidence. The staff photographer had taken that one after they all returned to Whiteside, accompanying the police and the prisoners to jail. The entire back page was devoted to pictures, some reproductions from Rick's movie, and some taken at the jail by the staff photographer. There was one of Captain Mike holding Carrot's rifle, and the caption explained how he had rescued the boys. So how much per column inch did you say we'd get paid? Rick asked Duke slyly. Too much. This is going to bankrupt me. Scotty folded his paper. We better get back to Spindrift, Rick. That's right. Rick knew his folks would be waiting to see the paper, too. He had phoned them as soon as they reached the jail. I'll take you to the landing, Jerry offered. Then I'll run Captain Mike down to Seaford. Never mind, Captain Douglas said. I could have a patrol car going down that way in fifteen minutes. It can drop him off. Captain Mike shook hands with both of the boys. I'll see you tomorrow, I reckon. In the afternoon, Rick said. We're going to sleep in the morning. After that fight at Creek House, Captain Mike had rowed them to the Spindrift speedboat in his dory. They had gotten their clothes but left the boat at the hotel. It would be safe. Police officers would keep an eye on it while guarding the load of arms. Captain Douglas shook hands, too. I should make a speech, he told them with a smile. You know, about you are both being good citizens, aiding the police at risk of life and limb, and so on. Rick grinned sheepishly. I'm afraid we weren't thinking about the citizen part of it, Captain. We were just... I was about to add that, Captain Douglas laughed. But thanks anyway, Duke Barrow said. I don't suppose you would accept the coffee we served you as part of your payment. Scotty snorted. Aren't you the one that said it wasn't coffee? All right, Duke's shoulders slumped. Drive me into debt, paying you off. Go ahead. We will, Rick retorted, and don't take the price of these papers you gave us off the amount, either. The editor laughed. Okay, take them home, Jerry. They'll have to wait until the first of the month for their money, just like the rest of our creditors. So long, kids, and thanks a million for a swell story. As they drove to the landing, Rick glanced quizzically at Jerry. Well, you asked for it, remember? Jerry was puzzled. The night we went to get a story on the wreck, Scotty explained. Didn't you say you wished you would get in on an adventure with us? I certainly did. I didn't know what I was asking for. Believe me. Jerry's grin widened. He touched his head tenderly, patting the bruises he had collected, and then he laughed. I was scared silly. But you know, I kind of enjoyed it. Rick and Scotty broke into laughter, too. On the following Monday, Rick was figuring out some changes in the infrared camera attachment when Scotty came into the room. Just got back from Whiteside with the paper and the mail, he announced. Look at this. He indicated an item on the front page. It was a Universal News Service dispatch. 
Authorities of a republic in the Caribbean had arrested the country's former dictator on a charge of planning a revolution, pointing to a large cache of arms and ammunition found at his estate as evidence. Arrested for complicity with the president of Campania Maratima Caribe y Atlantica, warrants were being issued for a number of others. That settles that, Rick said. Looks like we stopped a revolution. Yep, we're the guys that did it, Scotty boasted. He dropped a letter in front of Rick. Got this too. Look who's from. The postmark was Bombay. It was from Chada, the first letter since the Hindu boy had left them in New Caledonia to return to India. He's fine, Scotty said. I read it at the post office. His brothers and sisters didn't believe some of his stories, but he's convincing them. Also, he's going to work. He can't tell us yet what his job will be because it's some sort of secret. Well, then he won't be back to America for a while, Rick said, disappointed. We won't see him. He grinned, remembering the first time they had met Chada. He's probably at Crawford Market right now, bargaining at the top of his lungs for something. He picked up the letter and started to read, picturing Chada in his native dress once more, at home in Bombay. Rick's mental image was far from the truth. As he read the letter, Chada was writing to Rick and Scotty again, but this time he was composing an urgent cable, laboriously working over the cipher that would conceal its contents from his strange enemy. The Hindu boy was in the hiding place he had chosen deep in the Indian quarter of Singapore, but he knew it was only a temporary refuge. Once he emerged, the shadow would find him again. But if he could succeed in getting to the cable office first, Rick and Scotty would get his message, and they would come. Once the three of them were united again, let the shadow do as it would. Chada finished his composition, folded it, and tucked it securely into his turban. Then he slipped through a door into the darkness of the Singapore night. Yet his ciphered message was the key to an adventure that would plunge his American friends into both darkness and danger in the fabled, terrifying caves of Course Lincoln. The End We hope you've enjoyed this Uvula audio presentation of Smuggler's Reef by John Blaine. This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. The Rick Brandt theme should be recognizable as the Johnny Quest theme, which was composed by Hoyt Curtin. Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at uvulaaudio at uvulaaudio.com. You can also become a Facebook fan of Uvula Audio. Just do a search for Uvula Audio on Facebook or you can do it from the main Uvula Audio webpage. As usual, check out our Cafe Press website for t-shirts, etc. For other Uvula Audio titles, please go to our website at www.uvulaaudio.com. We are listed on iTunes, and you can subscribe and download our podcasts for free from there. If you like our podcast, please feel free to tip us whatever amount you may like using the secure PayPal links at uvulaaudio.com. From all of us at Uvula Audio, we thank you.